everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today we'll be talking to Ed Berlin about his book, King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin and His Era, just released in a new edition. Ed, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Ed, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little about yourself and how you developed your interest in ragtime music and in Scott Joplin in particular. Well, I was uh, teaching a course in jazz at Lehman College in the early 1970s. And in, uh, while preparing the course, I noticed that there was not very much written about ragtime at all. Since I was also looking for a doctoral dissertation topic at that time, uh, I decided, all right, I'll look at this more seriously. Other topics I was considering had to do with uh, Igor Stravinsky or with uh, Kurt Weill. Uh, but when I when I got to the ragtime, started looking at it, I saw there was really a wide open field here and uh, plenty of room to write. Wow. And so uh, was your uh, initial work on Scott Joplin in particular, or was it more broadly about ragtime? Well, my interest was in Scott Joplin, but I wanted, I wanted to see how Joplin fit into the entire context of ragtime. And so I started off with a general history of ragtime, which uh, well, this was this became my doctoral dissertation, which was also my first book, Ragtime, which is a general history of ragtime. Uh, although my main interest really was in Scott Joplin. And uh, did you progress straight from there to writing the uh, original biography or did you? Uh because one of the things that uh, really stands out when I, uh, you know, in, in the book itself is the sheer amount of detective work that goes into it. And I, I was wondering if uh, you had spent that time between your first book and, and the original publication in 1994 just on Joplin or were or did you pick it up a little bit later on? No, it, it was later on. Uh, I had gotten a call from uh, Martin Williams who was a well-known jazz writer at that time. He was also uh, an editor at Smithsonian Institution Press, and uh, he asked if I'd be interested in writing a biography of Scott Joplin. This was for a series on American composers. And he said specifically that I should not bother doing new research because everything that could be found out about Joplin had already been discovered. <laughs> so I said, all right, there are a few things I want to check out. Uh, in the process, I saw that there was an awful lot of material out there that had never been touched. Material in period newspapers, in uh, public documents. And uh, the, I saw the book was going to become much too large for what the Smithsonian Institution Press wanted. Uh, so they... Uh, they agreed that 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 we should drop that contract, and I made a new contract with the Oxford University Press for the uh, current book. So that book originally came out in 1984. That's right. Uh, what about the uh, new edition, and what distinguishes it from the one that you published uh, nearly a quarter of a century ago? Well, when I was preparing the work a quarter of a century ago, I was reading microfilm of vintage newspapers and I'd spend, I spent years just going through the microfilm, hoping each day to find a few items. Now, of course, with uh, some vintage newspapers being available on the internet, uh, in databases, uh, one can put in a search term and pick up things totally unexpected. So an entirely new world opened up when I started uh, researching again around nineteen, around uh, two thousand and nine. So you were discovering a uh, a considerable amount of new information about Joplin and, and the context of his uh, career that ha you hadn't been able to get to uh, back in, when you did the first edition. Well, well, for example, uh, there had been vague stories of Joplin. Uh, as an itinerant musician before he really got involved in ragtime. 
And uh, I discovered that through these databases, uh, he was traveling from the Midwest as far as east as Boston with a uh, with a barbershop quartet. Well, actually, I, I want to get to the uh – the the his, his career uh, in just uh, his early career in just a moment. I, I want to take a step back and and go into uh, a bit about his childhood, uh, because one of the things that you you write about in the book is just how difficult it is to pin down even when he was born, and there are literally monuments to him that uh, stand, which to this day contain incorrect information that that, that reflects some of this difficulty. Well, <clears throat> part of the problem was that everyone believed the word of his uh, third wife, even though she uh, was not really overly concerned about expressing the truth. Uh, you have a lot of noise there. Okay. I, I do. I apologize. I think I'm moving the microphone around a bit much. Hopefully we can... Uh, well, we'll probably edit that part out. Go ahead. All right. Uh his his third wife Lottie gave out information that was incorrect, and uh, she had a very casual relationship to the truth. She would she would just say anything that came to her mind, and but everyone accepted this. Uh, I just I noticed very early on that uh, information she gave did not uh, jibe with official documents with the census records with his death certificate. Uh, so I realized that the birth information she gave could not have been true. But do we have uh, an, an exact date? No. or No, we don't know exactly when he was born. The date, the official date had been July, 20, uh, excuse me, November 24th, 1868. But that's definitely wrong. Uh, the 18... 80 census shows that that could not have been the date. Um, the 1870 census shows it could not have been the date. Uh, he was probably born in 1867, sometime between uh, uh, July and the end of the year. Conceivably, he could have been born at the very beginning of 1868, but I think it was probably 1867. And where was he born? And what was his childhood like? Uh, he, he was born in northeast Texas, probably born on a farm. His father had uh, had been a freed slave. Uh, his mother was uh, born free. Uh, but they were really at the bottom of the economic and social ladder. Um, when he was a child, they then moved to Texarkana, in, uh, which is a town that straddles both Texas and Arkansas. And uh, that's where he grew up. Uh, the stories that he was born in Texarkana, of course, are not true because there was no Texarkana when he was born. <laughs> so how does he develop an interest in music? Uh, who, who, who's who's uh, fostering that interest? And, and, uh, and in what direction does it take him? Well, there is some evidence that there was a uh, music teacher in Texarkana named Julius Weiss, who took an interest in the young Scott Joplin and gave him free lessons. Uh, Julius Weiss is really a very interesting person. Uh, he, uh, he he was actually a bit of a scoundrel. He, <laughs> he, he would travel around the country. He would... Uh, he would he he would make himself liked by people in various towns, borrow money, and then disappear. In terms of Texarkana, he was actually the uh, president of the bank when he disappeared. But at least he did teach Scott Joplin, and he taught others in town who gave testimony as to what he taught. And he he put a great emphasis on uh, European classics and on opera which probably had an influence on uh, Joplin's aspirations. Uh, he had, in fact, written two operas. So he had a very uh, classical uh, music exposure, uh, and that, that, that stimulated a lot of his uh, interest in music then? Well, it was an exposure. We don't know, we don't know how uh, extensive the music education was, 
Apparently, early in his uh, career, he could not notate music very well. He became very proficient later in his uh, in his in his career. So, was his? It, it seems that he was more uh, focused early on upon uh, performance then. Uh, originally, it probably was performance. He he was traveling around the country with his Texas medley quartet. This was the barbershop quartet I had mentioned. Uh, but he, uh, it, it seems rather early on, he's, he also took toward composition and toward making arrangements. When you perform with a quartet, you have to make the arrangements. Uh, each each singer must be taught his part. So what instruments did he uh, learn how to play at this point? Well, aside from the piano, uh, he played violin. Uh, we know that because later in life he also taught violin, and he played cornet. Uh, the anecdote is that his his uh, mother played banjo and his father played violin. He also had two brothers who became uh, musicians, his brothers uh, Will and Robert. And did they go on to, uh, uh, so they, they, they were they uh, just musicians or were they also uh, singers as well? Uh, oh, oh, they were they were very good singers, and uh, Scott Joplin apparently was a very fine singer. Also, uh, mm-hmm. Will I believe died very early, so he didn't have too much of a career. But uh, Robert had a pretty long career, uh, extending into the 1920s. Uh, one of the things that I think really distinguishes your analysis of Joplin is how you situate him within the context of his age. And I was wondering if you could speak a little uh, bit about uh, what the, what was the music industry like in the 1890s? I mean, how, was it, was it uh, similar to the way it is today? I mean, how do musicians uh, earn their income? Uh, what was it like to, to be the type of traveling performer that, that Joplin was at this point in his life? Well, not only was he a musician, but he was a black musician at a time when uh, blacks, uh, African-Americans, w- were uh, in, in many places considered barely human. Uh, the, the way he worked, generally he would go with his quartet. This would be in his earliest days. He, he would pull into a town, and the first thing he would do is go to the newspaper office, and the quartet would do some performing for the uh, staff of the newspaper. This would get them some good press. Their performances would be in churches, uh, for which there would be maybe a 25-cent fee to enter, or they would play for tips in various courtyards in the streets and so on. Uh, So who were their audiences? Were they uh, mostly African-Americans? Were they uh, whites? Were they uh, mixed? Well, in in the church, they probably would have been African-American. In the uh, courtyards, or just anyone who happens to be in town, and certainly when they perform for the staff of the newspapers, this would generally be a white staff. Okay. He was hard. So he was he was very highly regarded by uh, by uh, by uh, uh, white newspaper critics and magazine critics. They always praised him very highly, uh, not only for his performance but for the way he spoke, for his refinement. And this refinement comes about despite the, uh, an extensive, uh, despite the lack of an extensive formal education. It's primarily in, possibly through exposure to uh, Weiss and his uh, European uh, background, his European uh, conduct, for lack of a better word. Well, you know, that would be guesswork. But uh, uh, he, he always did feel very strongly about education, and uh, he, he always, uh, well, throughout his life, he was always looking for uh, ways to educate himself further. I mean, uh, he he would he would get various music instructors, even even when he was in his forties and a very well known musician. Uh, he was still taking lessons in music, and of course when he uh, in the uh, 1890s, 
late 1890s, he went to Sedalia, Missouri, where there was a college for African-Americans, and he took courses there. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit more about Sedalia. Uh, he moves there in the 1890s. What was Sedalia like, and, and how did it uh, you know, influence his career? Well, uh, Sedalia uh, was established by uh, George Smith, George R. Smith, and uh, he uh, he opposed slavery prior to the Civil War, and after the uh, Civil War, he uh, he ha- he had his uh, heirs set up a portion of land that he owned uh, for the college that Joplin went to in Sedalia. Uh, It was... Sedalia was was probably a friendlier part of the state for African Americans than most parts. Uh, You read in the newspapers about lynchings in various parts of the state, as well as in many parts of the country, but I never came across a lynching within Sedalia itself. Uh, there were also two black newspapers in town, and there was an editorial uh, mentioning that whenever uh, Negroes in town were mistreated, it was uh, not by the natives of the town, but by uh, strangers who happened to come to town. So in the context of the time, the, the whites who lived in Sedalia were, had a very uh, progressive uh, mindset well, for the region. That's how we would put it today, yes. Uh, there were a number of black businesses in town, black social clubs. And, uh, well, for example, the Maple Leaf Club, which became famous because of Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. And there were complaints about the Maple Leaf Club. Actually, the complaints came mostly from the black clergy in town who did not like the idea of black women dancing. Uh, dancing was considered uh, not quite respectable. But the uh, when, when there were efforts to close the town, the mayor would agree to meet with the leaders of the various black clubs, which shows what the general attitude were. They... Uh, African-Americans were treated with some degree of respect that was not found elsewhere in the state. Uh, those social clubs, uh, what you mentioned the, uh, the linkage between the, the Maple Leaf Club and then, of course, uh, Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. Uh, what role did the clubs play in uh, Scott Joplin's career at that point? Were they, uh, was he meeting musicians there? Were they... Uh, performing venues, how you know what was his association with them? Well, Joplin was a member of the club, and as a matter of fact, he was referred to in a uh, business card as the entertainer, which became the title of uh, one of his most famous regs. Uh, these were places for entertainment, for drinking, even though they did not have uh, legal uh, drinking licenses there, but we know that drinking did go on card playing and dancing, things that the that the uh, black church clergy disapproved of. Um, many in the club did become performers also. Uh, several of the club members uh, joined with uh, Dan McCabe, who was a uh, uh, one of the top black minstrels of the time. Uh, he himself had been from Sedalia. Maybe that's why he brought uh, other entertainers from Sedalia. Uh, did Joplin himself uh, perform with the minstrels as a musician? Well, we don't know exactly what Joplin did in, in that respect. He, uh, he, uh, I don't think he performed with Dan McCabe's minstrels. He had earlier experience though uh working with the uh Texarkana minstrels when he was when he was younger. We don't know precisely what he did there though either, whether he was singing or uh playing the fiddle. Uh he probably was doing some singing. 
Now, uh, Scott Joplin's performing in these clubs. Uh, he's also a member of the Maple Leaf Club. What sort of music are they playing at the time, and, and how does that music fit within the uh, broader history of ragtime? Well, we don't know precisely what music they were performing. Presumably, they they perform some ragtime, but they would play any of the uh, popular music of the time. Um, James P. Johnson, a uh, early jazz pianist in uh, New Jersey and in New York, uh, told of how he would be performing in uh, 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 playing piano in brothels and playing just popular tunes of the day. Was, what was the relation between those those popular tunes and ragtime? Because you, you talk a bit about sort of the the evolution of ragtime, uh, you know, generally, but also in, in terms of how you were seeing it sort of sprouting up. I mentioned here, I mentioned there, never really a discussion of it, but uh, articles that would refer to a rag. Well, it was it was always possible to take any tune at all and by syncopating the melody, turn it into a rag. So that would be turned to rag the tune. Uh, not only popular tunes, but also classics were ragged. Very popular one would be uh, the uh, uh, the um, Mendelssohn's uh, Wedding March was frequently ragged. But when did the uh, artists start uh, composing uh, and, and publishing music that was classified as rag specifically? Was that at the beginning of the 1890s, uh, mid-1890s? The earliest reference to a piece of music referred to as a rag would be 1890, 1893. But the, the reference was to music that had actually been composed and published uh, a decade earlier. It was probably ragtime around since the 1880s, what, uh, even though it did, even though it probably was not yet referred to as ragtime, the term ragtime, uh, as far as I can determine, uh, first emerged in 1896. Uh, this was a, a term used by the performer Ben Harney, H-A-R-N-E-Y, who was a very interesting performer at that time. Uh, he was referred to as the first white man to play ragtime, but uh, a number of black performers said that he was really black and he was passing for white. Um, before the term ragtime emerged in 1896, uh, some music was referred to as rag music. But the term rag itself uh, had a history before it was applied to music. It was first applied to a dance event. One would attend a rag. So there was you know, a possible association there as well. That's right, yes. Okay. Uh, publishing music, why was that a, a goal of Joplin's? What, what was the benefit of publishing music? Well, the idea, the first, uh, his, his first publications, he was probably just given the flat fee which was the standard at that time for most popular composers. Um, with the Maple Leaf Rag, he managed to get a royalty contract, which meant that as much as the piece kept selling, he would continue to earn money rather than be satisfied with an initial payment of $25 or $50. Uh, and, this was the, and this was the primary means by which uh, musicians and composers could earn money outside of actual performances. Correct? Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, recordings were not big yet at this time. So uh, how does Joplin uh, get into recording? And, and here, I, 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 one of the things that stood out uh, in your book was, was the name John Stark. And could you speak a bit about uh, his role in, in, in Joplin's career and, and uh, his role in, in musical publishing? Well, John Stark, had an interesting life. He he sort of uh, drifted from one career to another. But uh, when, when he reached Sedalia, he 
became a music pub, excuse me, not a music publisher, but a dealer in music instruments. And he would also publish a small amount of music, um, mostly teaching material, some of which he would write himself. Uh, he had not published anything important before he, he came across Scott Joplin. He was impressed with the Maple Leaf Red, and he gave Joplin a royalty contract, and uh, he, uh, he published it. And after that, he became the most important publisher of ragtime, although in the larger scheme of things of popular music, he was never a big publisher. Aficionados of ragtime recognized that the best rags came from John Stock, Stock publications. And it sounds like he owes a lot of that to his association with Scott Joplin. Well, yeah, but he also had he also had good taste. I mean, he chose other very good composers. Okay, so the Maple Leaf rag was was Joplin's first rag, and he, no, uh, how no, successful it was. Not. Oh, sorry. Uh, before he published Maple Leaf Red, he published Original Rags. A few, that was a few months earlier. And that okay. was published with, um, uh, it, that was published in Kansas City with a different publisher. And he, he, he simply sold out the rights to that. And that's why he learned, uh, he should get a royalty contract. And how successful was Maple Leaf Rag? Maple Leaf Red was the best known instrumental rag of the entire ragtime years. I'm talking from the 1890s until World War One. Now, it was not as popular as something like Alexander's Ragtime Band. Vocal music songs are always more popular than instrumentals. But Maple Leaf Red was the most influential and most important instrumental rag of the period. So it put Scott Joplin uh, on the musical map, uh, publishing map, very early on. Yes, in, yes. in, in Ragtime's history. Uh, everyone who everyone who played the popular piano at that time tried to play Maple Leaf Red. It was a bit difficult, so not everyone succeeded. <laughs> so uh, you, you mentioned he had already published uh, original Rag uh, before then. Uh, he then publishes Maple Leaf Rag. Uh, what about what were some of the other rags he was uh, writing during the time? And, and, and could you speak a bit to the the, the, the style or, or how it fits in, in terms of the history of ragtime? Well, the uh, rag that made his name again during the uh, ragtime revival of the 1970s was the Entertainer. Uh, this was a rag he had written in 1902, and it was. Uh, it was appreciated at that time. A number of writers spoke of it as being his masterpiece. Uh, in, in terms of style, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean there. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, one of the things that you do in your book is you do a lot of, uh, you, you print a lot of the music and you talk about the, the, the style of ragtime. You talk about the, the beats, the, the uh, music itself. Well, well, Scott Joplin's rags tended to be more sophisticated than most of the rags of the period. Uh, he put in more care. Uh, as I mentioned early in his career, he apparently could not notate the music very well, but he learned how to do this extremely well, uh, putting in fine points that uh, other composers, other uh, other publishers never bothered with. Um, using things like double flats at a time where it was actually uh, uh, theoretically correct. He understood the theory behind what he was doing. Again, this points toward his, uh, uh, his, his dedication toward education. So he's really bringing uh, a lot more theory, it seems, to uh, composition uh, than some of his contemporaries. Right. You know, this is what his his publisher, John Stark, also pointed out. Uh, John Stark had a daughter. Actually, John Stark had two children who were very uh, proficient musicians. Uh, one of his daughters, well, excuse me, his daughter, Eleanor, uh, had, had studied in Europe with Moritz Moskowski, 
who was one of the piano uh, uh, virtuosos of the time. And she went on to a career uh, as, as a piano virtuoso, but mostly as, as a piano accompanist uh, for singers and for choruses. But uh, through her, John Stark had a great uh, connection with classical music. And so he referred to his uh, publishing house as the House of Classic Rags, saying that the rags published by his house were as good as any classical music. I'm sure that's something that, that, that Scott Joplin himself felt as well. Well, this was Joplin's aspiration. You know, he wanted to be recognized as a serious artist. Uh, aside from rags and a few songs and a few marches and waltzes, uh, he wrote two operas, one of which still exists. One was lost. And he wrote a ballet. Uh, he was very interested in music theater. Uh, and uh, his ballet was the uh, first step in that direction. Uh, when did he compose this ballet? Well, he probably started it soon after he, he published the Maple Leaf Rag in 1899. Uh, the, uh, there were performances, uh, 1899, 1900. Uh, the uh, Ragtime Dance, which was the ballet, was finally published in 1902. It probably was not the entire ballet. And uh, you mentioned the two operas, and this, this is around the time he was working on uh, his first one, uh, A Guest of Honor, correct? Right. Uh, Guest of Honor was 1903. Um, 19-1, Theodore Roosevelt became president after McKinley was assassinated. And one of the first things McKin uh, Theodore Roosevelt did, he had a meeting with the black leader, Booker T. Washington. And then he invited the leader. Uh, well, after that meeting, he invited Washington to have dinner with him and his family in the White House. Uh, this was a courtesy. Uh, but much of the country saw it as an outrage because it was saying that the black man was the social equal of a white man. And this was considered to be unacceptable. And mostly in the southern states, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was denounced for this. Um, some of the northern uh, uh, newspapers said that this shows that Roosevelt is president of all the people. But at any rate, um, Joplin, shortly after that, wrote uh, Strenuous Life which was a term strongly connected with Theodore Roosevelt. And so everyone recognized that this was some, some, some sort of tribute toward uh, Roosevelt. And then, then he wrote the opera, A Guest of Honor. And I, I would say I'm like 99% certain uh, that this was about the incident of Booker T. Washington having dinner at the White House. Uh, we don't have the score. We don't have the story, but we have the titles of a few pieces, and it all fits. It all makes sense. So, so uh, when did he uh, complete the opera, and uh, why is it lost today? Well, he completed the opera in 1903, and uh, it was supposed to open in Springfield, Illinois. The uh, opera manager, uh went with the cast and they were to rehearse in the theater in uh, in, in Springfield uh, early in September and uh, then they would open the next day. Uh, they were supposed to open, I believe, September 2nd uh, of uh, 1903. Uh, Joplin came into town then and the boarding house owner asked him for payment. Well, the uh, manager was supposed to pay. Joplin didn't have any money. So the uh, the boarding house owner said, well, you're not, not going to give you the costumes, not going to give you the music. I'm confiscating everything. You can't put on the show. Meanwhile, people were already in the theater. There were more people lined up waiting to go in. Joplin begged him. He said, 
I'll pay you uh, during the intermission with the proceeds from the box office. But the boarding house owner refused to release anything, and everything was lost. The opera uh, was aborted before it ever started. And Joplin had already invested a considerable amount of his own money into developing the opera. Well, we don't know what he invested. All we know is that the uh, manager disappeared. A few months later, the manager sort of reappeared, saying he was going to put on this opera at the uh, World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. But of course, that never happened. I, I think he was just trying to get in investors. He disappeared. I found him in the census in Chicago uh, in 1910. So if your know, odds are he didn't have it and it disappears in 1903. That's right. And Joplin never referred to it again. He may have used some of the music in, in, his, in his later rags. I, I want to take a step back now and look and talk a bit about his uh, personal life. Because uh, at this point, he, he's, uh, he's already been married once, and he's about to embark upon a second marriage. What, what was his personal life like during this period? <clears throat> well, his first marriage was probably not a legal marriage. Uh, this was to Belle Jones. Uh, some, some biographies refer to her as Belle Hayden uh, because she had previously been married or had a marital relationship with uh, a man named Joseph Hayden, who was uh, the older brother of one of Scott Joplin's students, Scott Hayden. So, uh, but Joplin lived with Bell from around 1900 to maybe 1903. We're not sure since there was no marriage, but uh, she did not appreciate his music and she left town. She went to Chicago, and, and she lived there until 1930. Joplin's friends, though, uh, confused her with Joplin's second wife, uh, who was Freddie Alexander. Now, after Joplin's opera failed in 1903, uh, sometime in the winter, in the following winter, he went home to uh, Texas or Arkansas, to visit family, and somewhere along the way, he went to Little Rock, Arkansas, where he met this young woman, uh, Freddie Alexander. And uh, he was very much taken with her. He dedicated one of his rags to her. This was a chrysanthemum. And he gave out uh, copies of this uh, in, in, in March of 1904, although the music was not officially published until uh, the following August. That is, it was not listed as published with the Library of Congress, but obviously copies were available. In June of 1904, he returned to Little Rock, where they got married, and this was a legal marriage. I have a copy of the marriage certificate. And uh, from Little Rock, they then traveled to Sedalia, where Joplin spent the summer giving uh, concerts. But meanwhile, Freddie became ill, at first with a cold. It became pneumonia, and she died the following September, uh, on September 10th of pneumonia, uh, less than three months after they were married. Uh, Joplin, about a year later, started writing a new opera. And I feel that this was definitely based in some way on Freddie. We don't know too much about her. I mean, here is a uh, a woman, a black woman, who died at age 20, died childless more than a century ago. She doesn't leave much of a trail, so it's difficult to find much about her. But I was able to locate her family in Little Rock, and it's a very interesting uh, middle class, or, or, or it was a family striving for the middle class. Uh, the father had been, apparently, had been born a slave. He was from Mississippi, and he, then he lived in Tennessee for a while, but he must have been born a slave. Uh, but the, uh, the family did very well. There were 11 children, 
and apparently they pooled their money to buy a house in a rather good neighborhood for African Americans in Little Rock. And they seem to have led a middle class uh, existence. They had middle class values. Uh, the men in the family were ambitious. They started businesses. And uh, this was the family that Joplin mar uh, married into. Uh, it probably would have been a good family for him. They seem to have similar values. Did he uh, stay in uh, any sort of contact with the family uh, after uh, Freddie's death? I have no information on that. I sort of doubt it. Uh, when Freddie became sick, one of her sisters, an older sister, Lovey, L-O-V-I-E, went to went to Sedalia to nurse her. And uh, Lovey lived until 1975. And I, I think of that. I mean, I was already writing about ragtime by that time. But, of course, I, neither I nor anyone else knew anything about Lovey or Freddie or any, anything about that part of Joplin's life. But she could have told us an awful lot. Now, I, I, I link her to uh, Joplin's second opera, Dream Initia. Now, as I said, we know so little about Freddie, but there are hints in the opera, hints especially in a preface that Joplin wrote to, to the opera, which links the opera to Tremonitia. Uh, uh, excuse me, which links the opera to Freddie. And uh, it, 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 sees, it shows what some of Joplin's values were, probably what some of Freddie's values were at that time. And he seemed really determined to make this opera a success. After all, he, uh, you mentioned that he, this is uh, soon, this is around the time in his life when he moves to New York City and how, you, how the opportunities New York City provided for staging such a, uh, <coughs> a, a, a piece uh, were likely a driving factor. <sighs> Uh, job, this, this became the main point of Joplin's life from this point on, to produce his opera. First of all, it would show that he was a serious artist. And second, it was, it, 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 it was a way of his showing his dedication to Freddie. Uh, he, he points out a number of, a number of places there are links showing that uh, that Freddie is in some way connected with the opera. She probably is is not the model for Tremonisha herself. This seems to be this seems to have necessarily have been fictional uh, a fictional character. But uh, as an example of a linkage, um, after the opera was after he published the opera, which would have been in uh, May of 1911, uh, a month later, they held a, uh, his friends held a party for him to celebrate the publication of the opera. I'm sure it is not a coincidence that the party was held on the anniversary of his marriage to Freddie. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit about the opera itself. Like what, what's it about uh, and how uh, is it Musically speaking, a uh, reflection of his uh, career. I mean, wh where does it fit in terms of the, the span of his career? The opera is about a black community in Arkansas, not far from where he grew up. Uh, the community is deep in the woods and the people live in ignorance and darkness. Uh, they are uneducated and they are preyed upon by local conjurers who would sell them bags of luck. Tremonisha, who is a foundling, for her adoptive parents arrange for her, for her to be educated by a local white woman. Uh, Tremonisha becomes the only 
person in her community who can read. She is literate. And by the way, this is how the refinement of Joplin's speech comes in into matter also. Uh, Trimanisha speaks without dialect, whereas most of the other characters in the opera have very distinct uh, uh, Negro dialects of that time, or what was considered to be Negro dialect. This was probably how Joplin spoke, because uh, a number of people referred to the refinement of his speech. Um, Trimanisha opposes the conjurers, and she uh, she uh, she manages to get her townspeople to oppose the conjurers. And they elect her as their leader, uh, and she leads them toward a brighter future through education. This is what Joplin was devoted to, uh, to education. Uh, this was a very common thought at the time that black Americans would find equality through education. It was not an idea specifically of Joplin's. You mentioned earlier uh, Booker T. Washington, his prominence, and you talked about how, uh, you know, Joplin apparently admired him greatly. Uh, well, of course. I mean, when Joplin had written his uh, Strenuous Life and uh, Guest of Honor, there was no other black leader who was well known at that time. Soon after that, we have W.E.B. Du Bois who comes along, who is... Mm-hmm. Uh, a much more demanding black leader than Booker T. Washington. Uh, was Joplin affected by uh, Du Bois? We don't know. Uh, but his opera Tremonitia seems to be a lot closer toward the ideals of Booker T. Washington. However, Joplin did become closely associated with two political radicals of, the, of that time. Uh, he uh, wrote uh, a song uh, with one uh, one man, Frederick Berry, who uh, was a uh, socialist and published a socialist magazine and written a socialist book. Later on in uh, 1913, or possibly even earlier, Joplin was studying with Bruto Giannini, who had something of a radical political past. Uh, when he was living in Italy, Giannini was uh, in uh, Garibaldi's army. Uh, he was fighting against the Pope to unify Italy. After uh, uh, Giannini came to the U.S., he seemed to have acquired a number of black Harlem musicians. So he was probably also uh, something of a political radical. We know that James P. Johnson, who also studied with Giannini, had become a socialist. And that's one of the things we haven't even touched on is is the fact that Joplin himself uh, was politically active as a Republican. Well, of course, he was a Republican. You have to remember, at this time, uh, Republicans were considered uh, the more progressive of the two parties. Uh, uh, the Republicans were also the party of Abraham Lincoln. So almost all black Americans who could, could vote voted Republican. And, and that involvement goes all the way back to his time in Sedalia. Yes, of course. Uh, he he helped form a Republican club, a, a, what, what they called a colored Republican club when he was living in Sedalia. I'd like to bring us back to, to New York, and he's working on the opera. It, it's uh, you know published. What is going on in terms of his uh, career at this point? Is he uh, enjoying other success? Is he uh, facing some sort of difficulty? Well, after moving to New York, he tried working with a few publishers, the most important being seminary music. And he, he published a number of very important rags with seminary music. Uh, the hist, uh, I was interested in finding out a little bit more about seminary music. And this is where going into 
uh, public business records counts. I found that the uh, uh, the owners of Seminary Music were uh, Mary Snyder and uh, get the other name, but it's not important. The thing is, it was related to Ted Snyder Music. Seminary Music and Ted Snyder Music were essentially the same company. Uh, working for Ted Snyder Music at this time was a young lyricist named Irving Berlin. Now, Joplin told the story that he brought his opera and uh, to his publisher. Uh, his publisher was Seminary Music, was sharing office space with Ted, Mu- with Ted Snyder Music. He gave the music to Irving Berlin, and several months later, Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band came out, in which the verse resembles one of the themes of Joplin's opera. Uh, according to the story given by Joplin's, uh, by uh, Joplin's, by uh, Joplin's early publisher, John Stark, when Joplin heard Alexander's Ragtime Band, he yelled out, that's my tune. <laughs> uh, it's 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 hard for us to say. There is a resemblance, according to uh, Lottie Joplin, Joplin's third wife. He changed his theme before publishing it, so it would not resemble uh, the 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 verse of Alexander's Ragtime Band. So it's very. Uh, so he's definitely interacting with uh, a, a, a wider scope of musicians at that point. How's he doing financially? Uh, he was always broke. Uh, he was not doing well financially at all. Uh, John Stark stopped giving him um, royalties. Um, whether he could have gone to court on this, I don't know. Um, but according to Joplin's friends, he never knew how to hold on to a dollar. And uh, there were there were stories that he was quite poor. Um, most of the money apparently was brought in by um, by his wife Lottie, who ran boarding houses. She had a few boarding houses. Uh, what was happening to his performing career at this point? Was he still capable of performing, or uh, was that changing as well? Well, he, <clears throat> some people referred to Joplin as being a good performer, but. Uh, most musicians who refer to him talk about what a poor performer he was. He was not a, a very, a, that is a good, a poor pianist. Uh, he was a very good singer, but he was not a very good pianist. Um, you mentioned that he avoids uh, a lot of the cutting contests that would take place back in Missouri among the pianists in uh, Sedalia. He just could not compete with the really good ragtime or early jazz pianists. He could not compete with them at all. Um, furthermore, he, he insisted that his music should be played exactly as written. And so many of the ragtime musicians couldn't even read music. They would, they would improvise. So he, he was not that... Uh, ragtime performance was not an important part of his life, even though he occasionally earned some money that way. Um, some reviews I've read suggest that his performances were not very exciting at all. Were his uh, poor performances a reflection of physical problems that he was uh, suffering from? It, it could have been. Of course, he had syphilis, and uh, this definitely would have affected him. But I think even early on, he was not up to par as a pianist. Uh, later on, it became impossible for him to perform. Hubie Blake, uh, that was the uh, composer of Shuffle Along, and he he uh, he lived into the 1980s. He told of a meeting with uh, in, in in which a crowd insisted that Joplin play, and he said Joplin sounded so pitiful, sounded like a child. Uh, does the uh, syphilis bring about his uh, death, or is there an additional cause? No, no, the, he, he died because of syphilis. One does not always die 
uh, from syphilis depend. It, it depends, you know, uh, what course the disease takes. If it goes into the into the tertiary stage, that is usually insanity and death, and that's what happened with Joplin, and he knew it was happening because it had happened to a number of other famous performers of that time. So when he dies, is he uh, is his death a noted event, or does he die in some anonymity? What happens to his reputation in, in the decades that follow? Well, by the time he died in 1917, he was pretty much forgotten. Uh, it was uh, an obituary uh, in in, uh, in in one Harlem newspaper. It showed they didn't even know who he was. However, the New York Age, another uh, newspaper, another Harlem newspaper, had friends of his, and they gave him a big write-up, but uh, most other newspapers did not bother with him at all. Uh, the Indianapolis Freeman newspaper had uh, several notices about him, and that was it. So how does he go from being forgotten in 1917 to being uh, the king of ragtime today? Well, he was never, his, he was never totally forgotten. Jazz musicians continued playing Maple Leaf Rag and a few other things. Uh, it wasn't until the 1940s, though, that a ragtime revival began. Uh, this was mostly out in the, in the West Coast in California. The Yerba Buena Jazz Band was looking for the roots of jazz. This is at the same time in New York that uh, some beboppers were changing the direction of jazz. Uh, they were going in one direction. Um, the Yerba Buena Jazz Band wanted to go back to the roots of jazz, and in doing so, it found ragtime. And uh, the pianist with the band, Wally Rose, actually recorded some some rags. Uh, Wally Rose's recordings were the first ragtime I remember hearing. This is many years before I, I, I before I was even teaching. <clears throat> so uh, this this started a little bit of an interest, and there were several articles in small uh, small magazines, small jazz magazines about Scott Joplin. Um, 1950, two books came out related to ragtime. One was by uh, Rudy Blush and Harriet Chanis. They all played ragtime. Uh, uh, the other was uh, uh, was on uh, Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, these books both came out in 1950, creating a new interest in ragtime. In the 1960s, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, there emerged some clubs, ragtime clubs, people interested in collecting the music and performing it. Of course, the big thing happened in the 1970s. Uh, just before the movie The Sting, first there was a recording by uh, Joshua Rifkin, uh, who played Scott Joplin rags for a classical label, and he played the music exactly, or almost exactly, as written. And... Uh, this actually started the Scott Joplin revival in the uh, 1970s, which reached its peak after Scott Joplin's music was used in the film The Sting. So in death, he achieves that ambition that he had his entire life. He becomes not just a ragtime composer, but a classical composer in some ways. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, his, in the 1970s, his music was played by pop performers and it was played by classical performers. I mean, everyone was playing Scott Joplin's music. Now, he, he had said, he had told other musicians that he would be recognized 25 years after he was dead. And uh, he was almost exactly on, on target there. Well, Ed, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before uh, we go, I want to know if you're working on uh, anything new. Well, at present, I'm writing some articles. I'm preparing. I'm preparing lectures. 
Uh, I'm not working on any new books, not at the present. Okay. Okay. Well, on behalf of New Books Network and our listeners, I want to thank you for being on our show today. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to you about uh, uh, the life and uh, career of Scott Joplin. Well, thank you for having me.